Good morning. Welcome. It's, a, it's good to see you all out on a kind of a dreary day, but it's good to be together uh, as the people of God and uh, to worship Him today. So welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're joining us by live stream, welcome. Uh, maybe you're joining us for the first time today. I think there, I see a few new faces. We're glad you're here uh, and just uh, privileged to have you join us for worship today. Here at East LJ, we've been captivated by Christ. We have seen through the gospel the glory of God in the grace of God given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he has captivated us. He lives today and he reigns over all things. He is our king and our savior. And we uh, as a church exist to spread our enjoyment of his beauty with the world. We want the whole world to see just how beautiful and good our God and Savior is. So we hope you'll see his beauty today and be captivated by him as well. I want to give a quick thank you to our newly formed Cedar Students Adult Leadership Team. Uh, we'll be meeting right after this service in the youth room and look forward to uh, uh, getting, getting going with you guys. Appreciate your willingness to serve our students. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Advent, that word means the coming. Jesus came. And he is coming again, amen? At Christmas time, we celebrate his first coming. Uh, during this month of Advent, we remember that he came and we anticipate his coming again. And Advent is for believers. It's for those who believe that the Christ came and is coming again. There's four Sundays in Advent. Uh, each Sunday, we have lit a candle to symbolize the light of the world who came to the earth that first Christmas to bring hope, peace, joy, and love, the gifts that our world needs the most, and gifts that only God can give and has given through His Son, Jesus. The third candle of Advent is the candle of joy, and we light that candle this morning. And as you can see, I forgot to light the other candles. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, John describes what he saw as uh, the curtain was pulled back and he got to look into heaven. And what he saw was this. He saw the, the heavenly host singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood... You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, when we sing songs of praise to the Lord, we sing for what? For the joy that we have. All of heaven is continually singing for the joy that Jesus has brought through his life, death, and resurrection, through the ransom paid for all of us who know him as our Savior. Jesus was born to die and redeem a world of sinners. And for those of us who are redeemed, our hearts and our eternity has been filled with joy in Jesus. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And yet so many around the world and some uh, not so far away have yet to experience the joy that we have in Christ. We have neighbors 
We have family members, friends, co-workers who've yet to trust Jesus and, and who've yet to, to know the joy that's found in Him. So we want to pray for your neighbors, those that you personally can, can speak the joy of Jesus uh, into their lives. We also want to pray for an unreached people group today. Uh, the, Gu, the Gujar, uh, this is a Hindu people group of a little over a quarter million people. And this is a people group right here in the U.S. You say, now wait a minute, there's unreached people groups in America? Yes. The nations have come to us. In fact, a couple weeks ago, Trey and Juliana and I took some of our youth down to uh, Lilburn, Georgia, and they're in, in the neighboring town of Clarkston. There's some 7,000 to 10,000 refugees from all over the world uh, who live there. They've been placed there by the government, and uh, so many unreached people groups represented there. Uh, so we want to pray for the Gujar people. Join me as we pray also for several that are on our hearts and uh, have been in our prayers uh, this week, uh, the sick as well as the grieving. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us in Jesus those things that we need most, the gifts of our heart for, the, for, for our heart that we need the most. You've given us hope and peace and joy all coming from your love that caused you to give your son to come and be born of a virgin, to grow up and go to the cross as our ransom. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that's ours. We pray for our neighbors who don't yet know that joy. We pray that you would make us faithful and bold and compassionate witnesses to tell them who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray for the Gujar people spread all over, some quarter million of them spread all over the U.S. God, we pray for your church here in America to reach across racial and ethnic and cultural lines and speak the gospel into their lives. This morning, Father, we pray for Tom Hart, a young, uh, young boy uh, struggling with, with depression. We pray for Ginger Holder, Ann's mother, um, her health seems to be declining lately. We pray for Juliana's mother, Pearl Franco, following some uh, surgery this week and a, and a hard round of COVID. We pray for, pray for Clara Betka. We lift up Judy Williams, God. Pray for Amanda Howard and her unborn daughter, one of her, one of her twins that's not uh, developing and growing. We pray that you would... Jumpstart her growth again, Lord. We pray for Sophia Deerwentz, uh, Sarandi's sister, who will, uh, not this week, but next, begin chemo treatments. We continue to pray for Ray Thompson. Thank you that I look out there and see him this morning. And uh, thank you that he can be here today. We lift up Larry Colson and Denise Key. Father, we pray for Scotty Sanford and Jamie Dotson. We lift up the families of Roy Price and Sam Port and Judy Godowns. Father, give comfort there. Thank you that you are the great physician, that you are the God of all comfort. You are our good and great shepherd. And Father, we pray that you administer these and use us to show your love in practical ways and uh, acts of service, any way that we can be of help in these situations, we pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of worship. And I pray that you would come now by your spirit 
carry us along in this hour. Lord, help us to be still, to lay aside all the stuff that's been on our minds, all the stuff we're carrying, all the things there are to do this time of year, Lord, and let us focus on you. May we be still and know that you are God, and may we worship you. May we drink deeply from the fountain of living water this morning. May we have our hearts satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we worship in song this morning. We are glad you joined us. Let's sing, uh, O Come All Ye Faithful.
Y'all can be seated for a moment. Megan's going to lead us in, in the past. <laughs>
Amen. Father, thank you that in our unfaithfulness, Christ came. In spite of our unfaithfulness, He came, Lord, for the very purpose of redeeming us in our sin. Father, I thank you that Jesus came right on time, that everything went exactly according to your plan. I thank you that he grew up to be the savior of the world. That He would go after living a perfect life in our place. He would go to the cross and bear in his own body our sins and there have all of your wrath and justice poured out on him in our place for us that we might be redeemed and forever changed. And after we trusted Christ, Lord, you came to live in us by your Spirit to give us strength to not only be saved from sin's penalty, but from its power. And God, we come this morning declaring how desperate we are for your power. How desperate we are for your Spirit's work in our lives. We are hopeless and helpless and bankrupt apart from you. Even today, Lord, we need you as much as we ever needed you. We need your grace as much as we ever needed your grace. And Father, I pray that this morning, through our time in the Word, you would help us to see something more of your grace given to us in Christ. Even as it's pictured and pointed to by the story we'll look at from the Old Testament today. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you came to save and that you're coming again to bring to completion all that you, that you accomplished the first time you were here. Lord, our salvation's done. But when you come back, we will be with you. Faith will become sight. We'll never be separated from you again. How we long for that day. We pray in, the, in accordance with the word of God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be dismissed to Children's Church. As they're making their way out, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ruth. Ruth chapter 3 is where we'll be looking. Ruth chapter 3. We've been walking through one of the stories behind the Christmas story this Advent season. We're in the third week of Advent, and so we're in Ruth chapter 3. We all know the Christmas story, don't we? And we're going to get there on Christmas Eve and during our time, even next Sunday, uh, with our children's play and then with our time, in our time together on Christmas Day. But do you know the story behind the Christmas story 
at least as it's found in the book of Ruth. My hope is that this story that we've been walking through will make your enjoyment of the Christmas story all the richer this year. Now, if you haven't already, and it's December the 11th, so you probably already have, but you'll likely hear the words sometime soon. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, what? Not even a mouse. Well, the story behind the story, as it comes from the book of Ruth, begins like this. "'Twas a thousand years before Christmas.'" "'Twas a thousand years before Christmas, and God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, even Jesus Christ. At the end of Ruth, and we'll get there next Sunday, uh, or the next, uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, the very end of the book, the author closes Ruth's story with a genealogy, and there it says Salmon fathered Boaz. One of the main characters of the story we'll be seeing particularly today. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And the reason that's significant is Jesus comes from whose line? The line of King David. And in Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6, we see this same Genealogy repeated, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And then down in verse 16 of Matthew 1 it says, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. A thousand years before Christmas, God was working in the history of one widow's despair to establish the family tree through which he would send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We'll see this all come to culmination next week in chapter 4. But we've been learning much about the goodness of God as we've walked through Ruth's story. In chapter 1, we saw the light of hope amid the darkness of despair. We saw how God sovereignly shines the light of hope in His faithful love while we're in the midst of the darkness of despair. You'll remember Naomi had come through 10 years of tragedy and despair. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. All of this happening in a foreign land of Moab. And she was then left alone in a foreign land with nobody but her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And you'll remember how one of those daughter-in-laws went home, Orpah, but Ruth clung to her, the text said, and refused to leave her alone. And then together we saw how they journeyed back to Naomi's town of... You remember? Bethlehem in Judah because of the famine, uh, because the famine that had driven her there to Moab, Moab had ended. There was once again how, bread in the house of bread, which is the meaning of the word Bethlehem. And so there was a glimmer of hope at the end of chapter one out of a, after a whole lot of tragedy. There was a glimmer of hope shining for Naomi and Ruth for the first time in years. Then in chapter two, Last week we discovered a blossoming and peace-providing barley field romance. We found love in a barley field. God surprises us, we saw there, with His lavish, peace-providing love in the most unlikely places. For survival, Ruth had gone to glean barley behind the harvesters. 
It was a way that God had set up for the nation of Israel to care for the poor. And she just happened to end up in the field of Boaz, who just happened to show up the same morning that she arrived at the field. And he went on to show her great compassion and honor and care. And then he just happened to be a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and thus a potential kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Today, we come to Ruth 3 where we see a strange and unexpected proposal. A strange and unexpected proposal. Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Referring there to to the other young women who she was gleaning uh, barley with. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, being Ruth, replied, All that you say, I will do. In verses 1 through 5, we see Naomi's hope-filled initiative. Naomi's hope-filled initiative. Naomi saw the big picture of what had been going on in their lives and the life of Boaz. And she sees that the big picture is full of hope. God brought her and Ruth back to Bethlehem. God orchestrated Ruth's path to Boaz's fields. God used Ruth's loyalty to Naomi to cause her reputation to precede her So that Boaz, when they met, already knew about her. He knew that she was being faithful as a daughter-in-law in in an unusual way to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi knows that Boaz is a potential kinsman redeemer who's qualified to redeem Elimelech's property and marry Ruth and thus perpetuate the lineage of Elimelech and his sons, Malon and Kilion, because at this point, all three of them were dead, right? And so Naomi's aware of the big picture. She sees God's hand at work, and she's been watching this situation now for probably two to three months, the length of the barley and wheat harvests, to the time that they're now threshing the barley. They're they're, they're getting it all ready to go into the barns. Boaz's kindness... And his compassion and his favor towards Ruth, certainly it was not a one-time deal. She continued in his fields. And though we don't have the story, undoubtedly, day after day, week after week, they saw each other. I mean, just think about it. If he basically took her on a lunch date on day one of their meeting, surely there was more conversation that followed during the weeks ahead. Maybe Naomi even senses that Boaz has some interest in Ruth, but because he's much older than her, as we'll learn later, he doubts that she would even be interested in him. It's a fascinating story, is it not? By the way, that's actually true. He is interested in her. We'll see it a little bit later. 
And so in in light of the clear, sovereign hand of God at work in the situation, Naomi decides it's time for Ruth to take the initiative. Here's the truth I want you to pick up right here. Far from causing us to sit and do nothing, hope in God's sovereign work in our lives moves us to take the initiative to act and to pursue His intervention, both in prayer and in obedience. Amen? Do you believe God's sovereignly at work in your life? Do you believe He controls all things in your life? Do you believe He's moving the moments and days and weeks of your life? Do you believe that? Well, far from making you just sit back and say, you know, here's the deal, God's in control, it's not really up to me, and it's not, but but, but what I'm going to do in light of that truth, I'm just going to sit back and come what may. Can't really do anything about it anyway. Is is that how we respond to the sovereignty of God? It's not the way Naomi responded to the sovereignty of God. Far from causing her to sit and do nothing, hope in God's sovereign work, of which she was sure in their lives, it moves us to take the initiative to act, to obey, to pray, and to pursue His intervention. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 Remind us of this from the New Testament. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Act, take initiative, obey, pursue God's work in your life. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The fact that God is working in me to give me the desire to do His will, the fact that it's only God who can enable me to do His will, does not mean I don't have responsibility to get up in the morning and seek to work out my own salvation. Decide to be obedient to God. Decide to trust God today and the promises that He's given me. Make the decision to to go on my knees and and, and, and cry out to Him for Him to do what only He can do in my life. And so it is with Naomi. Well, the story picks up in verse 6. It says, so she went down. Speaking of Ruth here, she's got her instructions from Naomi. Verse 6 is speaking of Ruth. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now let me just tell you, if you don't feel it yet, this is intense. What's going to happen next? I mean, if you're Ruth, just imagine. This is dicey. How will Boaz respond? When he realizes Ruth is there, and she's in bed with him. She's down at the foot of the bed. We'll talk more about that later. She's at the foot of the bed, and that's where she stays. What's he going to do? When he wakes up and realizes Ruth's in in the bed, is he going to freak out and run her off? Rebuke her? Or, if you're Ruth, will he try to take advantage of her? Well, the story goes on in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled. Here it comes. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. (laughs) I mean, we can't even express what I just read right there, right? (laughs) He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are. Our Redeemer. Wow. 
I'm telling you, that took guts. And in verses 6 through 9 that we've just read, what we see here is Ruth's risky but righteous, joy-seeking proposal. Ruth's risky but righteous, joy-seeking proposal. Let's try to unravel this confusing situation. This is a risky situation for Ruth. She is risking being misunderstood and taken advantage of by by Boaz. She's basically going to the foot of his bed, taking the blanket off his feet, and laying down by his feet. History tells us that the threshing floor was often a place where the men would spend a couple weeks They would just camp out. There was so much grain to be threshed and taken care of, they would stay out there. And history tells us it was often a place where prostitutes would capitalize on the business opportunity to have men alone out in the middle of nowhere. And so they would go hang out at the threshing floor and make good money. Remember, this is happening. This story unfolds in the middle of the time of the judges, a historical period of the people of Israel where sexual immorality was rampant and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. But it is clear here, nothing inappropriate happens between Ruth and Boaz. You say, well, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? I mean, she climbed into the foot of the bed, she uncovered his feet. Well, For starters, the Old Testament is not shy if it decides it wants to talk about sex. It just goes ahead and does it. And it's clear. It would be stated here if that were the case. Let me just give you an example, and and let me give you a connected example to Ruth and her people. In the beginning of the Moabite nation, Ruth was a Moabite, remember? The beginning of the Moabite nation happened through totally immoral, it was even an incestuous act back in Genesis 19 by Lot's oldest daughter. Genesis 19, 31 reads this way, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now you understand what that last phrase was about. That was a sex phrase, Okay. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. These are his daughters talking to each other. That we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was so drunk, he didn't even know what happened. The text goes on to talk about the second. The the, the text goes on to talk about the second uh, daughter doing the same thing. Verse 36, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The text goes on to tell us that the daughter of the second, uh, the the offspring of the second daughter um, was the beginning of the Ammonite nation. And so if the Old Testament wants to talk about something, it just goes ahead and does it. But our text in Ruth 3 says no such thing because it didn't happen. Both Ruth and Boaz behaved righteously. 
While this is an absolutely intense and romantic moment, no lines are crossed here. And so, pick up the story again. It's midnight. Boaz's feet get cold, and he sort of wakes up, and verse 8 says, At midnight the man was startled, you think, and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, as I think about this story, and I read that verse, one of two things happened in this moment. Boaz either has one of those full-body jumps that came over him, though you're laying down and you don't actually do any jumping with your legs, like your whole body just comes off the bed. Either that happened, or he was suddenly paralyzed and couldn't move at all out of shock and confusion. And in verse 9 he says, who are you? I mean, it was like, who are you and what in the world is going on? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Does that sound familiar, that phrase, spread your wings over your servant? You see, what Ruth is doing right here is reaching back to another encounter with Boaz. And she's saying, hey, Boaz, you remember when you said to me in the fields, the barley fields, that, that I had come and you were praising me and encouraging me because I had come to take refuge under God's wings? That was back in Ruth 2, verse 12. Boaz there says, Ruth, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He was encouraging her about what a good daughter-in-law she'd been, how amazing it is that she was so loyal to Naomi, but he also acknowledges the fact there was more to it than that. She came back to Bethlehem with, with Naomi because she was hiding under the wings of God, taking refuge in the God of Israel. Well, Boaz, remember when you said that? Well, I'm here asking you to be God's way of making that real and practical in my life. Boaz, I'm asking you to be the provision of God in answer to your own prayer for me. I'm asking you to spread your protection over me since you're a kinsman redeemer. Take me as your wife and provide for me, but also act as the kinsman redeemer for my deceased husband and provide for the continuation of his lineage. Now we have that interpretation of that language of Cover, being covered with the wings of, of God, and, and, and in this case, her, her seeking shelter under his wings, Boaz's wings. We got that confirmed in Ezekiel 16, where God is talking about his relationship to Israel, and he uses that same image of covering his beloved as a picture of his spiritual marriage to her. In Ezekiel 18, uh, 16, verse 8, it says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. If the picture we see in Ezekiel 16 is any indication of what Ruth was asking Boaz to do, then it went far beyond just some quick sexual encounter. She was saying, in effect, I would like you to be the, I would like to be the one to whom you pledge your faithfulness and with whom you make a marriage covenant. You see, Ruth was hoping in God and moved by her hope and how she saw God's hand at work in her and in Naomi's life through Boaz. She takes a risk 
And she seeks from Boaz the joy of becoming his wife and having her and Naomi's needs met, as well as having her husband's property and family line redeemed. Well, Boaz's response to this is awesome. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. In verses 10 through the first part of verse 12, we see Boaz as a ready redeemer. The kindness you're showing me right now, is what, this is a summary of what Boaz is trying to say here. The kindness that you're showing me right now is in, in inviting me to take you as my wife. It's a greater kindness than what you've been showing Naomi in leaving your homeland and family and staying with her. Ruth, I realize you could marry any of the younger guys all around town. But you're here and you're wanting to marry this older guy so that you can continue to be faithful and caring to your mother-in-law. And I'm going to do it. I'll be glad to do it. I'll be glad to take you as my wife and to be your kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a ready redeemer. But there's a plot twist. Verse 12 continues, and the next words that come out of Boaz's mouth makes our hearts sink. Yet, Boaz says, I'm ready, I'm willing, I'm going to do it. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Oh, no. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Everything's going so good. The plan is unfolding perfectly. I mean, we're about to have a Hallmark Christmas movie ending. What? There's another guy that can, that's closer in, in, in relationship and has to have first dibs at redeeming Ruth and the family property? Boaz tells Ruth, so here's what we're going to do. Verse 13, remain tonight. Remember, it was midnight when all this started. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he, this other guy, by the way, we're never told his name. Boaz, no doubt, knew him. But the author never gives us his name, Mr. No Name. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, just know, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Ruth, I'm willing to be your husband and, and your kinsman redeemer, but there's another guy. And he's closer, a closer relative to Elimelech and Malon, Ruth's dead husband. So, so after the sun comes up, what we're going to do, I'm going I'm to have to see what he wants to do about this situation. You know, one word comes to mind, integrity. He just did the right thing. He kept doing the right thing. He'd been doing the right thing. He kept doing the right thing. And so verse 14 says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz, even in this verse, is being careful to honor Ruth and protect her reputation. Nothing happened, but he doesn't want anything to be said about something happening. So he sends her home. 
But before she goes, he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. This would be like her coat. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley. It's a lot of barley. And put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she's back at the house with Naomi now, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Remember when Naomi first got back, Naomi and Ruth first got back to Bethlehem? Remember what Naomi told the whole town when she, when she got back? They all came out to greet her. Is that you, Naomi? Remember what she told them? She said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she told them that she had left Bethlehem ten years earlier full, but that she'd return empty. Boaz sends Ruth home with an abundance of grain to assure Naomi that one way or the other, she will once again be full. One way or the other, Boaz is going to make sure that Naomi and Ruth are redeemed and provided for, whether it's Mr. No-Name or him. Verse 18, after Naomi hears the whole story, no doubt she's blown away, she's smiling ear to ear, and she tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth, God's been at work thus far. And Boaz is going to make sure you're not alone and that we have food and a future family one way or the other. We just have to wait and trust God with how it plays out today. But we're not going to have to wait long because Boaz wants it settled quickly as much or maybe more than we do. And you and I will have to wait just a little while to find out how it turns out, but we won't have to wait long, just till next Sunday. As we see Boaz in this part of the story as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, we see a picture of the redeemer who was to come through the offspring of Boaz and Ruth generations later, our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus, our ready redeemer. We're going to revisit this next week as we look to the conclusion of Ruth's story in chapter 4, but just a couple things about the kinsman redeemer and and, and, and how Boaz pictures for us who Jesus would be to us. In order to be a redeemer in ancient Jewish culture, three things had to be true. First of all, the redeemer had to be related to the one being redeemed. We know that Boaz was related to Elimelech. Do you understand Jesus is related to us? When he took on flesh, he became like us. He became incarnate. He he, he tabernacled among us in order that he might be like us and thus able and qualified as a kinsman redeemer. He is associated with us in every way. Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 17 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's me and you as believers, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Believers. Human believers. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And he did. He became flesh and he paid the price. He was our relative. He was one of us. He was fully God and fully man. Second thing a, a redeemer had to, ha, had, had to be about was a redeemer had to be able, able to redeem. Boaz had to have the means to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He had to have the financial backing to be able to purchase the family property of Elimelech's, and he did. Jesus had to qualify and be able to redeem his people, and he did. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 20 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. You see, money wouldn't do to save your soul. And not just any blood would do. For hundreds of years, blood had been shed for sin, right? Hebrew says it was the blood of bulls and goats and, and lambs. And yet none of that atoned for sin. Only the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, spotless, would pay, could pay the price. Only the perfect Redeemer, who was fully God and fully man could stand in our place and give his life as an offering to holy God and satisfy the wrath of God and fully atone for our sins. And so he did. But the third thing a redeemer had to be was willing. A redeemer had to be willing to redeem. It wasn't mandatory. It wasn't a forcible thing. Boaz, we see, was a ready redeemer. Jesus was a ready redeemer. John 10, he says it himself. Out of, his, out of his own mouth, we hear his willingness, his readiness to redeem us, to pay the price it took to cover our sins, to wash away our sins. John 10, verse 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You know, when we read the story of the last week of Jesus' life, it sure looks like there's a whole lot of people that hated Jesus, beat Jesus, spit on Jesus, and killed Jesus. And there was. But you know what Jesus is saying here? Not a one of them could have done any of that except that Jesus laid his life down. Jesus was sovereign over his own arrest, betrayal, and execution. He gave up his life. No, he could have called the, a, a thousand angels and, and had them come wipe out the whole bunch that was against him. He could have spoke a word and vaporized them all. He's the one who, by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 says, upholds all things. He gave every one of his persecutors and his killers their breath. Jesus laid down his life. Our redemption came 
at an unimaginable cost to our Lord. Not only was he related to us in the incarnation, he was also qualified as a spotless lamb. Not only was he qualified, but he was also willing to redeem. Luke 1 verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Describing the coming of Christ there in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning. For he has visited and redeemed his people. That passage in Luke 1 says, you know, he, he's, he's visited us. He's shown up in the, in the manger in Bethlehem. And it uses the past tense of redeemed. He's still a baby in the manger. But he's visited and he's redeemed his people. How could he say that in the past tense? Because he came, and the fact that he showed up, him getting the job done on the cross and in the resurrection is as good as done. And so it was. Galatians 3, verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hang, is hanged on the tree. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says of Jesus, He entered once for all into the holy places, not only by, the, by means of the blood of not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Revelation 5 9 that we read at the beginning of the service says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and, 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 and people and nation. You see, far better than the joy he brought to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, a ready redeemer, God has brought us everlasting joy by sending us Jesus, the only qualified, able, and willing, eternal redeemer, for a world of sinners. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent's all about. More about that next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story and how it points us to Jesus to come. Jesus, thank you that you came. That you did pay that redemption price on the cross. That you rose on the third day. That today you reign and rule over all things. You indwell us by your Spirit, and one day you are coming back to take us home. Your second coming will be one of glory. Oh, you'll judge the earth. You'll judge all of those who've rejected you, refused to obey the gospel. But Lord, for us who trust you, you will take us home to be with you face to face forever. What joy that brings us today. God, I pray if there's any in the room today who've yet to know you as personal Lord and Savior, that even today, as the gospel has been made clear, Lord, that they would come to you and trust you and find their truest and deepest and everlasting joy in Jesus by trusting you today. We ask it all in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together as we close our time in worship.
I'm going to ask Joe to just play maybe one more verse of that song. And as he does, um, our brother Roger asked me to request from all of you prayer for his family. And so let's just spend some moments in silent prayer praying uh, just for God to work. You know, God knows what's, what's going on. God, God sees and knows all things. Just talk to your father that, that, and ask him to work on our brother's behalf this morning. for our brother thanking you that you see and you know God we pray that whatever the battle that rages you are more than able and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world Lord Jesus you rose from the dead and that changes everything you are alive Today, you are on the throne. You rule over all things. And that's why we're talking to you. Asking you to do what no one can do. And work in hearts. And God, we just pray that you would do that for your name's sake. As we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.